Stu Does America. Joining me now in studio, the one, the only, Dave Rubin. His new book is out, Don't Burn This Country, Surviving and Thriving in Our Woke Dystopia. It's available now. Be sure to pick up a copy today. As well, you can catch Dave, of course, on the Rubin Report right here on Blaze TV. Dave, how's it going? Stu, what was the funny part there? Was it the surviving or the thriving? The surviving is like, yeah, yeah we're kind of doing it. The thriving was what got you. Like, yeah, it was. Eh, thriving. I don't know. Well, that seems like a bit much. Most dystopian societies don't talk about thriving all that much. No. But here you are to bring us a positive message. Um, let me. I want to get into the book here in a second, but we just did a thing on uh, on this this misinformation board uh, yeah. that is that is happening. I mean, you've dealt with this. You were suspended for saying something about vaccines that is now apparently very easy to say. Anyone, anyone New York Times can say it. Anybody can say it now. The problem with trying to crack down on misinformation in this way, besides the fact that it's not really constitutional when the government does it, is that they can't figure out what it is. I mean, you know, this is uh, it's it's a process that seems completely uh, you'd say it's random if it wasn't targeted at one side all the time. Well, that's the key part right Mm -hmm. there. I was suspended in July of 2021 for saying that Vaccine mandates were coming and that vaccines were not working as promised. Mm. Well, we all know that the vaccines were not working as promised. We knew it then. We certainly know it now. (laughs) Uh, Joe Biden had said just before that, that uh, if you get the vaccine, you will not get nor transmit COVID. That either was a lie or disinformation or misinformation, or he was handed a piece of paper and just read something not knowing what he was saying. I mean, we can... It's a whole other topic, whether <laughs> yes, uh, whether anything that come out of his mouth is, yeah. is disinformation or honest or coming from his brain or whatever else. But the point is, I was suspended on Twitter for that. And then, of course, subsequently, over the course of a few months, it all turned out to be true. So I would say that, in essence, yesterday's conspiracy theories are <laughs> tomorrow's truth. And really, this has nothing to do with stifling disinformation. I mean, if you wanted to stifle disinformation, we need only look at the very people that are trying to institute some of this stuff and the lies that they have pushed, uh, whether it was Russia collusion or all of the COVID stuff, obviously, or Brett Kavanaugh as a serial rapist or a litany of other things. I mean, these people have lied either intentionally or misinformed, perhaps unintentionally, although I think we're past that point. They've done it for so long, Mm -hmm. and what they really are trying to counter is that there are some people actually waking up to the nonsense, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this is happening at the exact same time as Elon Musk is buying Twitter and basically just saying, hey, say what you think, and then we'll see what happens. And that's the enemy. I mean, yeah. they're, they're terrified of that prospect. Yeah. Um, let me get into a piece of misinformation as it re- regards to your book, because yes. I'm fascinated by this. Oh, We've been dealing you, with this for a long me? time. No, well, I'm not you. I'm, I'm yes. fact-checking something around you. So your book, uh, this is your second one here in a row that has been hugely successful. People are buying it like crazy. It's awesome. Yeah. However, the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Speaking of disinformation. It is among the most infuriating things I've yeah. ever witnessed. When, when Glenn's first book came out, um, or maybe it was his second book, I guess, we were, at, we were at working at CNN Headline News to show you how times have changed. Yeah. And I remember it coming out, and we got the book scan numbers first. And the book scan numbers just tell you how many books are sold. Right. It's and just straight just up straight sales. numbers. Yeah, okay. Sales. Easy. To, we know how that works. Who sold the most books? That's kind of how we thought bestseller lists worked. And Glenn finished first. And then I think it was, I want to say it was Stephen Colbert. It was Colbert or John Stewart or something. It was in that era. And we came in second on the New York Times bestseller list. And, uh, and Stephen Colbert came in first. And we were so infuriated. Mm-hmm. Glenn's last book, to show you how far the New York Times has changed, he's, again, selling number one on BookScan yep. and is number 13, number 15, uh, not even on the list some weeks. I, I mean, 
the fact that this is still the thing people look to as a marker of what people are reading is insanity, and you've been affected by this now. Well, what's incredible about it, before I get into my sob story, (laughs) and thank you for queuing me up nicely, is that, first off, let's just give Glenn some credit for a second. He sells so many books, even now, and when I say even, uh, I mean even now meaning that it's much harder to sell books. Yeah, the book industry has changed. The book industry has, has massively changed. He's selling crazy bananas numbers. So this time, I think they did put him on for the Great Reset, but they put him much lower much than lower, he should yeah. be and all this mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. But your basic point is, look, here we've got numbers. Sales are numbers, <laughs> right. right? It's pretty obvious. Yeah. You buy something, it gets ticked off, it's been purchased, move on. And everyone thought that's what the New York Times bestseller list meant. But in essence, it was their own sort of curated popularity contest. And there are certain things that they want you to see. There are certain things that they want their readers to see as relevant. And then there are certain books and ideas and people that they don't want on there. So by sales, we should have been number two in our debut week. Mm. Uh, and, and when you combine formats, meaning audio and everything else, perhaps we should have been number one. I, don't, I honestly don't care. Uh, Truly, because it's all nonsense. What I care about is that there are people that are duped by this. And if you think about the new, it's not about the importance of the sales and the numbers and that you get to say New York Times bestselling author. It doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't. But if they lie about straight up numbers, as you said, book scan numbers that we know are hard facts, and I know facts are counter to the New York Times, then what else do you think they're lying about? Yeah. And I think if you can get people to see that conclusion, if we can get people to connect that, boy, you know, they manipulate. You think you're so bright, you read the Sunday Times, you think you're so enlightened, and you're getting all of the information. Well, by the way, they're lying to you about book sales, something pretty straight up. So you think they might be lying to you about some other stuff. And if we can actually pull that thread a little bit with people, I think we can break through to some of them. You know, a lot of people that are still paying attention to this stuff are completely brainwashed. And, and maybe <laughs> yeah. we're never going to get them. Yeah. But I think it's it's worth a shot. So I, I don't care about the Crimea River aspect as much as I'm very proud that people read the book and, and seem to be digging it. And, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. You know, we'll just keep pushing on. I think, I think you identify exactly why it fascinates me in that, you know, this is something basic. It's like the score of a basketball game. Right. And it's like they're just altering it for some mysterious reason. This is not the year 1875 and they're trying to like, you know, figure <laughs> out who's buying books in the, on the frontier. Right. right. Like this is, everyone knows how many books are sold. There's a list published that tells you exactly how much. And what I also find fun, fun, uh, fundamentally interesting about it is that the, the story I, I described with Glenn is, is exactly true. It, it, when we first started writing books, he would they would move it a slot or two and you could t- it was frustrating because they yes. would manipulate it and they would change the order a little bit. But they wouldn't deny that the number one book in the country was really not even on the list. Now they're at the point. This is what they're doing. They're taking the list, the number one, number two best selling books, throwing them off the list completely. And it shows this is the same way their news coverage has changed. It always leaned left a little bit. Now it's just completely bonkers. But I guess the, the good thing for us and people that enjoy what we do, is the mask is coming off this thing. Because you're right. When they could say, okay, the number two book, technically, let's put it at four. It's like, "Ah, maybe there's some way you can fiddle with some stuff. Okay, kind of. But when they completely change things, and then it's just obvious, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, I don't even know what the other books actually were on the list. I mean, I saw the full thing. But there's nothing that's really culturally relevant that I was, like, I think Molly Shannon, the comedian or former (laughs) comedian, had a book. Okay, good good for Molly Shannon. But the point is, I had this book. I'm I'm the only one, I think, as far as I know, that was in those top, 
I wasn't even in the top 15, but out of the people on the 15, that is touring and sold out clubs across the country. <laughs> right. Like there's something relevant there, mm -hmm. uh, but they not only don't put you on there, they don't, they don't write a review or anything. But again, it's like, all right, you're duping your own people. And the, the issue that I think you're hitting on is sort of, if you just dupe these people over time, and over time and over time and over time, well, you're not a newspaper anymore. So <laughs> when the New York Times used to say it's all the news to, that fits to print, it's actually all the news that fits the narrative. And if we can, again, just get that idea out to people, just understand they're lying to you about an awful lot of stuff. Hmm. And if you get that, then you can hopefully start seeing the light. So I appreciate you bringing it up and I will continue. Well, you know, the other interesting thing about this, as you know, is that the entire publishing world has been based for 40 years on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. The whole thing was just get on the New York Times bestseller list. So by the time I wrote the first book, that was already starting to crumble. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, it's just, now it's a joke. Like really I can is. tell you truly from the highest levels of the publishing people that I'm involved with at the big companies, everyone's like, the whole thing's a farce. Don't get your panties in a bunch, yeah. life goes on. It's more about, I've noticed that they're more about just warning the authors, don't worry it's, about it's, it, it's yes. okay. Yes. We don't care. Yeah. Um, so let's go to the actual content of the book here. Yeah. Um, because Although that's not too far from the content of the book, honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. this idea that media Mainstream corporate media cannot be trusted. Yeah, um, you, you set up current society, modern society in an interesting way in a battle between self-care and self-reliance. Yeah. Explain this out a little bit, because I don't think I've ever heard this explained this way. Well, we're obsessed with self-care, or at least this idea of self-care, that everything should just be catered to us and very easy and simple, and you should be able to get food delivered to you at the click of a button, and everything should appear all the time, and you know we should have monthly subscription services to all of our prescription medication, <laughs> and that we should basically just be, as I talk about in the book, we should be the characters in the Disney movie, dare I say Disney anymore, uh, but Disney was decent for at least a little period of time, uh, the Disney movie Wally, -E, which you may remember, yeah. where in essence, you know, people had just become these sort of big fat blobs that existed in this futuristic spaceship and that had all of their carnal needs fed to them and that were just eating and drinking and watching things all the time. And they were just sort of these or semi-autonomous nothings that floated throughout the, the <laughs> ship. That's very different than self-reliance uh, because self-reliance is knowing how to do some things. Basic things, I'm talking things that we all knew how to do. Stu, how old are you? Uh, 46. Six, I'm 45, okay. Stu, so mm -hmm. I'm the younger one here on the show. But, <laughs> but you know, people, especially before us, yeah. knew how to do some stuff. Oh, you yeah. might know how to change a tire, mm -hmm. Stu. Uh, you might know how to grow a garden. You might know how to do some basic electric work. You might know how to reset a breaker. No one knows how to do these things anymore, meaning, meaning millennials basically don't know how to do things. They've been catered to to the point that they actually, if, if the poop hit the fan, and we've seen a lot of that over the last two years with lockdowns and violence and defund the police and all these things, that nobody can really do anything for themselves anymore. And you better learn how to be self-reliant because the big systems are crumbling. You, you may like the idea that you can do everything off the click of your phone, uh, but there is a real danger in that because it's disarming you from being able to take care of yourself. It's interesting because it is, I think, it, like I am pathetic with most things and being able to do them. I would not consider myself particularly good you at what you're talking about. haven't fallen out of the chair about. yet. No, that's true. pretty good. I can change a tire, a garden. I just hope Taco Bell's still open, yeah. right? So that's, just, that's the whole thing. But it's like millennials and younger people who are yeah. generally more leaning left-wing as far as voters go and their interests are the ones who have embraced this lifestyle. And this lifestyle is only made possible by capitalism, yes. which they seem to hate. And I don't know how, I mean, if capitalism goes away, 
uh, as they seem to want to when they go to the polls, they seem to indicate that's their preference. All these things go away. The DoorDash doesn't come deliver when the the government's in charge of it. Young people are stupid. (laughs) (laughs) We have to accept that and deal with it. I can see how you become an old man yelling at a cloud. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can really see how that happens. Look, the more that things get automated, the more that humans get removed from the system, the more that feeds a socialist monster because socialism in many ways is very anti-human. Capitalism is human, meaning that people like to freely exchange things. You have a skill or a good or a service, and I have a skill or a good or a service or money, and then we can exchange this openly, and then someone comes in with a better product, and then now the price goes down, and we can do this this dance that is very uh, holistic in in its sense of humans operating together by choice, right? It's amazing. It's incredible. What's happening because of technology is we are now automating everything to the point where we're removing humans from it. So DoorDash, guess what? We may not like what's going on and everybody may be able to do it all by a click of a button, but eventually they won't need you know, drivers in those cars because it'll be automated cars and it will be drones that are dropping these things off. So we have to be very careful what we ask for. You know, Technology, the phone in our pocket, this is a tool, I would say the same way something like, or a technology the same way something like fire is. You know, Fire is obviously great, it can warm your home and it can cook your food. It can also burn down that same house and burn you. So we really have to think, what are we really doing with all of this stuff? And I don't have an answer for that. I think the answer is personal for everybody. How connected do you want to be all the time? And how much reliance do you want to have on something that, you know, could just, the grid could go down one day and now you don't know how to do anything? Yeah, there's a mixture there. There's there's some sort of midpoint. Uh, Last one before you go. Um, There's a, I think there's a debate on the right that is growing in which capitalism is coming under more question than I think it has previously. I think that the love for free markets has always been something associated with the right that the left has fought against. And the left still hates it. The right, there's a split, though. I think we know some of the outcomes of the free market. We've talked about them here. You know, even with things like Disney, we haven't we don't like what's happening. And and there's been a pushback against uh, I don't know, not against capitalism, but a a worry that capitalism can't solve all all of our problems. How do you see this playing out and and what's the right answer here? Look, capitalism, as far as I can see it, is the best of all man-made systems because it allows for the most competition. And as I said earlier, that's the most human thing that there is. It it Mm -hmm. leaves a little bit to chance. It leaves a little bit to human ingenuity. It leaves a little bit to hard work and luck and all of those things, right? Mm -hmm. So that, to me, is the best system. But is there anything that's perfect? I mean, I think this is what people always want, something that's just absolutely perfect. But perfection, I don't think, is attainable, actually. And, And perfection will lead you far closer to dystopia than to utopia. So is it possible that a corporation could become so large and buy all of the competition, thus crushing competition, and now prices rise and you're under their boot all the time? Of course, and does that happen? Of course. However, human ingenuity always finds a way. Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park, life (laughs) finds a way. So I think as long as the conditions of freedom are there, we could maybe do some things on the margins. I would say related to the Disney situation, look, they took a political position that apparently has turned out to be quite unpopular. (laughs) And it's cost them $41 billion roughly in the last month or so. That is pretty spectacular. And not only that, because that's the market talking. You Mm -hmm. know, DeSantis didn't go in and send the troops in and break up the board. He just basically said, hey, I'm gonna stand against your beliefs related to the, you know, Bill HB 1557, which quote unquote, don't say gay, although they could have called it don't say straight. That would have also made equal sense Mm -hmm. because the word gay is not in there. Mm 
Um, would have been equally wrong. <laughs> and it would have been, it would have been yeah, equally yeah, wrong. Yeah. At least do something equal, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, by DeSantis taking away some of Disney's special privileges, I think this is perhaps what you're talking about. This is where some conservatives were like, no, don't, don't push Disney too hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, but no, I believe you should take away all their special privileges. They shouldn't have special tax breaks that other companies have. They uh, don't have. They shouldn't have special laws, which they have in Orlando, and uh, and special. I mean, they can do their own roads and all of these things yeah. that maybe made some of it maybe made sense for expansion 50 years ago, but it doesn't make sense anymore. And uh, I don't want to be governed by a fictitious mouse. No, even if they come from California. It sounds so delightful. From California. <laughs> all right. Dave Rubin, the book uh, is out now. Make sure you pick up a copy. It's not it's not going to help him on the New York Times bestseller list, but buy it anyway. <laughs> uh, don't burn this country surviving and thriving in your in our woke uh, dystopia. It is available now wherever you get your books. And don't miss out on Dave Rubin's show. Of course, you're on Blaze TV. BlazeTV.com slash Stu. Promo code is Stu. Dave, thanks for coming on. Good to see you, my friend. Joining me now in the studio is Douglas Murray. He's a columnist for the New York Post, associate editor of The Spectator, and author of the brand new book, The War on the West, which is available now wherever you get your books. Make sure to get a copy. It's great. It's a great read. Douglas, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, it's a great pleasure. Uh, let's talk about the thesis of the book, um, The War in the West. It, it's interesting. You hit on something early on in the book that I thought was fascinating. We all sort of noticed that um, black conservatives are still the enemy. Mm -hmm. Any member of a minority group, uh, a, a group that normally would be an oppressed group mm. that happens to have conservative thought, they're still the enemy. They're still bad. Mm -hmm. And you, I think that's kind of the thesis of the book here, or at least what set you on this path. Because when you realize that, you realize mm. it's not about these groups. It's a war on the West, the Western thought, Western civilization. Well, that first thought is something I'd tackled in my previous book, In the Madness of Crowds, where mm. I pointed out that, you know, whenever anyone of any minority group uh, transgressed the, uh, the alleged orthodoxy mm. and revealed that they were a conservative, they were thrown out of that group. Right. So uh, Peter Thiel, after he came out for Trump, was called not gay mm. by the main gay magazine in America. Uh, when Kanye West came out uh, for, for the Republicans, Similarly, he's described as no longer black in the Atlantic magazine and so on. F uh, feminists, when they don't go all the way with the radical left, were described as no longer feminists. Mm. So that's certainly a trend in our time. But what I'm talking about in the war in the West is in a way deeper even than that. That's a sort of symptom of a particular yeah. problem. What I'm describing is the way in which essentially the, m the most important to identify movement of our time is the movement against everything that we've inherited in the West. Mm. The desire to tear everything down that is ours, to be turned against everything if it's ours, to admire things so long as they're from somewhere else, yeah. to admire other ideas as long as they were come up with by other peoples. And the most obvious version of this, the clearest example of it, is the attempt in modern day America and the wider West to destroy and then fundamentally rewrite our history. Mm. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, I, as I was reading the book, you were going over a bunch of examples of how we look at something that's clearly better here mm -hmm. in the West and uh, compare it to, you compare it to something overseas 
that is much worse. Uh, yeah. And we tend to praise the thing. And what popped into my mind was was the way we treat medicine. A lot of times yeah. what Western medicine is vilified. Uh, it's, you know, these we always talk about these evil companies that do all these terrible things, while ancient Chinese medicine is something we constantly when, praise. When, uh, when somebody says they're turning to Chinese medicine, you know they're about to die. <laughs> yeah, okay. right. There's a reason that Western medicine works. I say towards the end of the book, you know, we've been polite about a lot of these things, but maybe it's time to stop being polite. Mm. Maybe it's time to say, look, Western medicine isn't preferable because it was come up with by white people. Right. It's preferable because it works. You know, the not mm. polite thing that we might be being pushed to if this anti-Western, anti-American craze continues is to say when we need a vaccine for, for instance, a... Uh, pandemic, mm -hmm. we don't go to First Nations peoples. Right. Okay? We don't go and look at historic Chinese medicine. I'm afraid we just don't. We know that the Western system of science works best, not because it's from the West, but because it works. Now, extrapolate that out on a whole set of other things too. Mathematics, uh, reason, logic, the rational method. Never mind once you get to the arts and all of the flourishing of the arts that has happened in the West. Mm -hmm. These things are good because they work and they, they happen to be great. It's not because they come from the West, let alone just because they predominantly were created by white people. But, you know, it's, it's as if anything that was created by that worst type of person, the dead white male, mm. has to be perpetually degraded and done down. Yeah, you, you go in. You, you have no fear in this book, and you no. go into all of these areas. And uh, you know, it was interesting to see some of the examples you brought up as to just how uh, how we've decided it's okay to say terrible, terrible things about white people. You yes. bring up a, 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 um, an example from one of the late night shows where they where they talk about the, the amount of white people in the country went down in the census, yes. and the audience, I'm sure, mostly white people, clap. Yes. How, what other context would that be acceptable? Exactly. If, uh, if the census found that there had been a decline in the number of black Americans, for instance, and a studio talk show host said, you know, the number of black Americans has gone down this year, and the studio audience whooped and clapped, <laughs> we would say, wow, what a racist audience. Right. Well, same thing. Same thing. Wow, what a racist audience. Same thing when we hear people talking about white white fragility, mm. white rage, all these pathologizing terms about white people. Do it with anyone else. Would we expect Mark Milley, the, chair, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to sit in front of Congress and be asked his views on black rage? No. So it's wrong whichever way you do it. But the own, we know that with every group. But the only group today that people think it is permissible to say these things about are white people. Yeah, it really is a strange thing. Um, and you go into, you, you, you know, you talk about CRT and, and, and these things that are going on and this idea of lived experience, hmm. which is an incredible tool, I think, if you can utilize it in an argument, because no one can experience your life exactly. So you're able to, I guess, kind of craft your own truth. Yes, exactly. I mean, you can say, you know, this, this thing, whatever it is, does not reflect my lived experience. Lived experience, by the way, is such a ridiculous phrase. I mean, there's no other type, is there? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, unlived it. experience, right. you know. Um, but this goes against my lived experience. It's meant to be one of the shutting down terms of our time. Mm. Uh, we all have experiences. Uh, we know that we cannot adapt everything in our society to people who, as I, I've written before, offer you the following um, 
thing on a plate. They mm-hmm. say, yeah. you must simultaneously spend your life trying to understand me, full stop. Also, you will never understand me. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is a, this is I'm a not, theme. I'm not wasting my time with this. Yeah. You can't be both, both insurmountable and something I must devote my life to understanding. Mm-hmm. And besides, it's not very interesting. I mean, you know, one of the things I, I point out in this book is that, as I say, you have things like, none of this is at the fringe. All of this is run right through American culture now and wider Western culture. You have in America equitable maths. Equitable maths is meant to be a form of maths that, that ignores what is said to be the white supremacy built into maths. Now, what are the other things other than maths that work? Well, equitable maths, which is now taught in American schools, says there are other ways of knowing. It's never explained what other ways of knowing are, but non-white students are alleged to have it. Hmm. As if there's some nascent form of mathematics in their heads that is not accessible to white people. I say in the book, tell me what this means. (laughs) Does it mean anything? Does other ways of knowing ever come up with any formula to answer any question. Show me one time it's worked anywhere. Find me someone who can actually tell me what this voodoo is. There is no answer. Mm. We're being tricked. The whole trick is get rid of everything if it's identified as being white and Western. Mm. Yeah, you know, that, is, there, is there any part of you that's surprised that we've come back this way? I, I was under this impression that we all realized that judging people by the color of their skin was a really bad idea. It's something yes. you shouldn't even consider when making decisions in your life. We've now completely reversed that. What we have to realize is, this is an insight that philosophers have made before, people at the moment are talking about justice and they don't mean justice, mm. they mean revenge. Ibram mm. okay. X. Kendi, one of the great uh, sages of the so-called anti-racist, actually racist movement we see in our time, uh, actually says in his work, in order to make up for past oppression, we must have present day oppression. Mm-hmm. In order to make up for past prejudice, we must have present prejudice. This line of thinking says that because undoubtedly black people in countries like America were prejudiced against in the past, the answer to correcting that historic wrong is to be racist to white people in the present. I mean, anyone who thinks that is a good strategy for long-term peace in America and the wider West is clearly delusional. You've hit on my, my favorite Ibram X. Kendi quote there. Extraordinary. Which is extraordinary. I couldn't believe it when I first read it. I honestly thought it was a, a scam. Like, I thought someone had posted a fake yes, quote I on the internet. I thought it was written by an go, enemy of his. Yeah, yes. I, me too. Uh, mm. You know, the, the only way to cure past discrimination is, is present discrimination. The only way to, uh, to cure pa- pa- present discrimination is future discrimination. This is like something I would expect from someone who's described as alt-right or some, yeah. you know, terrible person. Some racist. But right. I'm afraid we have to be frank about this. This is this is racism. This is racist. racist. You, you mentioned something it, right there, I, I, and I wrote it down because I thought it was so such a great way of looking at the entire world when it comes to Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, everywhere you turn, the exits are blocked. Yes. A white person who wants to live in this world 
can never please this system because mm. every single direction you go, they say you're bad if you go there. That's right. There really is no way to win here. No, I mean, let, let's do it again on, on Robin DiAngelo, the, the high priestess of so-called white fragility. Mm. Um, Robin DiAngelo, who is, of course, herself white, uh, um, she, she says in her book, White Fragility, that there is no good form of being white. No good form of being white. Mm. And you can't escape being white. <laughs> now, again, How does let's that work? try this any other way around. Mm -hmm. Imagine if Robin DiAngelo or any other race huckster like her decided to say, there is no good form of being black mm. and you're stuck. You can't not be black. Mm -hmm. We would say, there's an old racist. Yeah. Okay, well, once again, here's a racist. Yeah. This is what it is. This is what it is. It really is. And we, it has to be called out. It has to be called out. Um, let me talk about uh, the, the George Floyd thing for a minute. You mm. go over this in the book. And it, it was amazing. And we, I think we all felt this escalation. Mm -hmm. An escalation from something where we all sort of at the beginning kind of came together mm -hmm. and said, at the very least, this is really bad. A really mm -hmm. terrible incident. Uh, we want to know the details behind it. Was there race behind it? We never really saw evidence of that, no. but you know, some people believe that. And it continually, though, escalated out of that. It mm. went. It, it almost seemed like the left would rather have had us disagree about that incident and wanted to use it against us, rather than come together and say, "Hey, you know, we all agree this is an injustice. Let's solve it." It's a very important moment to seize upon. As I see it, the the, the killing of George Floyd, which has never been shown to be a racist incident. Now, some people might say, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? If there was evidence that Derek Chauvin, the policeman who was found responsible for the death of George Floyd, was doing it because he was driven by racism, mm -hmm. that would have been brought out at the trial. Right? There, sure. was, there would have been no, there was no reason, if there was evidence of that, for the prosecution to keep that away at the trial. They never raised it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't part of the prosecution. And I also cite, there are cases, and I go into one in particular in the U.S., one in, here in Texas. Yeah, talk about this one, because I live here, and I didn't even know the story. The case of Tony Timper, yeah. a few years before uh, George Floyd's death. Tony Timper was killed in almost exactly the same way as George Floyd. Mm. And uh, he happened to be a white American. He was suffering from uh, a various mental illnesses. And he begged the police for his life. And we don't know, most people don't know his name. Mm -hmm. And, and in fact, there was no particular outcry. It's only because of good local journalists here in Texas that the police body cam footage ever came out. But here's the thing. It was immediately asserted with George Floyd that this must be a racist killing. And then it went on to something else. This is representative of policing in America. This is representative of America. Mm. This is representative of the West. Mm. Okay, it went out in no time. Within a few days, People in London uh, were assaulting a statue of Winston Churchill in Parliament Square <laughs> right. in the name of Black Lives Matter yeah. because they had been told racist killings like this happen all the time in America and it's outrageous. Well, of course, if you thought that that happened all the time and nobody cared about it, of course you'd be outraged. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case. The fact is that this, this horrible, horrible killing was used by the radical left as the example of what our societies are in the West. 
because they were waiting for such an opportunity. They had already decided we were white supremacist societies, uh, internally racist societies, institutionally racist societies. So when this came along, this was their perfect opportunity to say, you see, we told you so. And in the process, Western societies, including most obviously America, which are the least racist societies in the world, were condemned as the most racist. And even America's ambassador to the United Nations last year went to the United Nations, used the example of George Floyd as an example of the institutional racism mm. of America, and immediately the Chinese ambassador to the United Nations said, the Americans have done something unheralded in the history of this place. They have come here today to confess their guilt and therefore they have no right to tell the Chinese what to do. Well, China happens to have a million people in concentration camps, so very convenient for them. Yeah, yeah, it, it happens to be going on all over the world, as you point out in the book as well. Do, do you have a few more minutes? Can, of course. We, right, can we take a quick break? We'll come back on the, with more uh, with Douglas Murray on the other side. The new book is The War on the West. Uh, make sure you get a copy of it. We'll be back in a second. Back with Douglas Murray. The book is The War on the West. Uh, can we do a little bit more on uh, CRT? You go through the kind mm. of the foundations of critical race theory. Yeah. And you talk about how assertions are made without evidence. This is not something, you, normally you need the evidence to make the assertion. That's not how, that's not the foundation here. No. Uh, CRT, which everyone has heard so much about in recent uh, years, really, um, has been developed for decades in a few universities in America. Um, the fascinating thing about it is, first of all, it's, it is simply about assertions. Mm -hmm. uh, the assertions are that, for instance, we live in a cis heteronormative white patriarchal society. You know, tongue twisters like that. Mm. Um, and it is, and it asserts that CRT asserts that, for instance, white people are guilty from birth. Um, now, there's something very important about CRT, which is that it's a theory which has not so far survived its first interaction with the public. Mm. Because when American parents in the last year discovered what their children were being told, not just taught, but told, they of course were quite rightly up in arms. Mm -hmm. uh, many parents said, hang on, uh, this means that if my child is white, you're telling them that they're less than other children. Well, again, it would be appalling if uh, schools in America were teaching black children they were less than other children. This is schools teaching white children they are less than other children simply because of the color of their skin, saying that they are particularly guilty. Now, this, this is a demonstration. This theory, which must have looked wonderful in theory <laughs> at Berkeley and other places, sure. in practice is indeed a form of outright racism. And I am personally thrilled that American parents have just cottoned on to this fast and have said no. Because if there's going to be an answer to a lot of this that's going on, that is one of the answers. A bottom-up rebellion to say you will not indoctrinate our children with racism of any kind. Yeah, we will see people like Ibram Kendi and, and Robin D'Angelo 
line their pockets. I mean, they're making millions and millions of dollars on this nonsense. You highlighted an in- interview with uh, Robin D'Angelo where when asked for evidence, her evidence was that, uh, well, white people have a collective glee when they see the punishment of black bodies. Yeah. It's like, well, first of all, I don't know who you're hanging out with. Unbelievable. Uh, you need to have different people you're having yeah, lunch with. Yeah, I mean, with. Um, yes, Robin D'Angelo was asked for evidence, as you say, makes another crazy assertion. <laughs> assertion. Um, oh. that, that's her stock in trade. By the way, there's something very interesting about these people. They will never debate. Neither Kendi nor D'Angelo will accept any invitations to debate. They won't debate me. They won't debate their other critics. They put these wild, mm. racist assertions out there and then leave them. They won't even defend them in public. Why? Because they can't be defended. Mm. Why is it important to them to undermine Western culture, the Mm. history of the West, the good things that have come Mm. uh, from America and other nations. Why is that so crucial? Well, it's not just them. I mean, there's a huge movement of people now in America and the wider West. The most troubling is the example of what they're doing to our history. And this is worst in America. I mean, you remember when the statue toppling, the the iconoclasm began again Mm -hmm. um, in the summer of 2020. People said, well, it started off with some of the southern generals and and nobody was that way. By the time they got onto the founding fathers, people were getting worried. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln starting to get worried. FDR starting Mm -hmm. to get worried. There is now not a figure from our past in the West who is looked at in a positive light other, by the way, and I show this in the book, other than Karl Marx. Right, he's the one statue that never gets toppled. one statue that never gets toppled. And by the way, he's much more racist than anyone else in my history, as I show in the book. But this this attempt to clear out our past so that our heroes like Churchill, like Lincoln, are all taken down. Like Jefferson, wheeled out of the council chamber in New York last year because Jefferson, in the words of one council member, does not represent our values. Um, This is an attempt to completely clear the public space of all of our heroes and all of our history. This is the moment when the American people and others in the West must say, no, no, you don't get to do this. You do not get to clear away all of our, t- of our temples and our holy places. You don't have the right to rewrite our history. You don't have the right to reframe the founding date of America so that we are born in the guilt of slavery and can never get away from it. You do not have that right. Mm. That right is not given to any individual, any newspaper. The American story belongs to the American people, warts and all, but you don't get to just focus on the warts. That seems to be a basic request that we should have no trouble upholding. Yes, no other societies other than Western societies in their current manifestation want to feel hatred of themselves. It is only in these societies that we are taught that we should feel guilt and shame for things we did not do. Mm. You, you mentioned Marx's racism, and you go into a lot of depth uh, there. And they're, I mean, they're uncomfortable to even read the quotes that you oh, have. Um, you, we couldn't read them out. We couldn't read them out. Um, I think a lot of people miss the fact that he also was an anti-Semite. Oh, yeah. Which a lot of people think, well, it wasn't Marx Jewish. Um, no. But can you kind of go into that? He a hated. Bit? He hated he, the he Jewishness. A, yeah. He hated. He hated self-hating Jews. Jew. Uh, more than self-hating. Mm-hmm. He um, and yes, I mean, he he when he uses when he wants to attack somebody, Marx, uh, quite often in private letters will refer to them as an N-word hyphen Jew. Mm. 
Um, so anyhow, in, in the days since uh, this, since since um, the war in the West came out, I have um, heard from a certain number of Marxists who are alarmed at what I have brought to the fore. <laughs> and I tell you what their main arguments are against me. They don't deny any of the quotes, any of the many quotes I have. They have two arguments against me. The first is they say, well, he was a man of his time. Okay. Like Jefferson, you right, mean. Right. Like Lincoln, <laughs> yeah. like Churchill. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh -huh. The second one is they say, well, we don't go for him for his private views on race. We go to him for his economic theories. Well, we don't go to the founding fathers solely for their views on race right. or anything like it. <laughs> right. uh, we don't go to Churchill for his somewhat Victorian attitudes on various subjects because he was, after all, born in Victorian England. You know, so, in other words, they are on the rear guard trying to defend their guy, mm. but they still think all of our heroes should be treated by this same double standard, this same thing of being guilty of having lived in the past. You know, I identify this because we have to identify what is really going on. This is a war on the foundations of the West, a war on the foundations of Western ideas, of Western peoples, of Western history, Western religion, and Western culture. It is a war on everything at the depths, furthest depths of our society. Everything we have, this war wants to take away from us. We have to be willing to say, no, you won't. That's a perfect place to leave it, although you should not leave it there. You should go get this book. Douglas Murray, the new book is The War on the West. There's all this evidence about all this in, in here as well. And he goes through all the arguments, talks a lot. We didn't even get into religion, which mm. there's a great section on that as well. Uh, make sure you pick up the book. Uh, Douglas, thanks so much for coming on and doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you. I'm so happy to welcome Laura Shin to the program. She's a crypto journalist, author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, which is available now. Make sure you grab a copy. It's great. Uh, also, she's the host of The Unchained podcast. Be sure to subscribe to that as well. Laura, thank you so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I, I was. I mean, I'm so glad you were able to take the time. It's such a great book. And, you know, really, like, I think the the... The history of basically Ethereum, you kind of go through, there's a little bit more to it than that, going through the beginnings of crypto and however, how we got there. But this is the story of Ethereum. If you don't, it, you know, people don't go into crypto that much. This is the second biggest cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin. Um, but it really did have a, a, a different vision and a different start. The, uh, tell us about the founder, Vitalik Buterin, and, and where he came from and how he came up with this, this vision. So Vitalik Buterin is a Russian-born Canadian, well, now I guess you would call him, uh, you know, uh, a developer, uh, a sort of <laughs> um, cryptocurrency creator. Uh, but back in 2013, he basically was actually a Bitcoin journalist. And he was traveling the world, going to these different communities around the globe that are into Bitcoin. And he was noticing that they were innovating on Bitcoin in a way where they were just adding new features. So, um, you know, Bitcoin, famously, the white paper says that it's a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And so people would just kind of like create a new blockchain with an additional feature or, you know, few features. And he thought, why can't it be more like an app store where anyone, any developer can think of a decentralized application? So, uh, you know, famously, Bitcoin is decentralized, meaning there's no company or CEO or any government or any single entity that is responsible for it. But it's just a group of loosely 
um, organized people around the globe that that uh, run the software and make sure that the network is running. And he thought, why can't developers do similar things with other kinds of applications, just the way that, for instance, the Apple App Store has photo apps and cooking apps and financial apps and productivity apps. And so what he did was he developed Ethereum so that it was centered around a single programming language. And through that language, then any developer could have an idea for a decentralized application on Ethereum and upload it just the way that we do to our app stores. And so, yeah, he um, basically sent out the white paper for this idea on the day that Bitcoin crossed $1,000 for the first time. Mm. So pretty much right away, people understood there there's potential here for us to make money and yeah, that was that was the beginning. Yeah, and some people might have seen Vitalik, you know, in in media reports, maybe seen him online. He's, he's certainly a prominent figure there. I, it's it's hard to really imagine what was he like 19 years old when this <laughs> happened? I mean, this is it's just fascinating to see what this has grown into from where it began. Yeah, he was 19 at that time and actually what they decided to do was kind of publicly present Ethereum for the first time at a conference known as the North American Bitcoin Conference in Miami and uh, I think like within a couple days after that he finally turned 20. <laughs> but the fact that he was so young at the time that he started Ethereum really caused a lot of the troubles early on in Ethereum because he did not really have the personal skills in order to manage kind of like the different personalities and and other things that were going on. Yeah, th this is one of the things I really took. Uh, it was interesting to see the book, the way you wrote it in that, it, you know, it, it's, of course, a story about cryptocurrency, but it really you did a great job humanizing these people like I. I in a way, I, I feel like uh, as an outside observer of, of, a, of a blockchain project, I'm thinking of just quants. Like these are people who are just, all they talk about is programming language and they, they're almost robots to me in, 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 the, in, the, in the story I've created in my mind. I mean, it's interesting to see these people interact with each other. There's a personality conflicts, there's the difficulty, there's the power struggles, all the things you'd see in a, in a band or something as it formed and rose to prominence, you see in the story. Yeah, yeah. I honestly feel like pretty much the whole book, frankly, just ends up being all these different conflicts. And part of it, frankly, is because I do think Vitalik had that difficulty just asserting himself. And multiple people talked to me about how he was so conflict averse and he was so young that older people and especially people who might have been more self-motivated realized that because he could not say no, if they just hung out with him, got in his ear, he would not be able to say, you know, I don't agree with you. And so eventually they would get their way. And a lot of people basically try to do that. And this is why you will see um, there are multiple instances in the book where in a group discussion, Vitalik will come in and he'll have these ideas. And then that's not what gets decided. Other people kind of have more influence and they sort of, um, yeah, determine what those decisions will end up being. I think everybody in their business life has had a couple of these people where you know, they are manipulating the situation and they're trying to put influence on people. It seemed like almost everybody around Vitalik had uh, these sort of instincts. And it, I, as I was thinking about it, you know, I got into, you know, Ethereum pretty, I think, relatively early on, mainly out of luck because of a, of a, a friend's advice. Uh, but I think, honestly, if I had known what was going on behind the scenes, I wouldn't I wouldn't have wanted to have been involved with it. I mean, it, it felt it reading your book. It feels these are very smart people, but it was really out of control there for a while. 
It was. I mean, there were so many travails. You know, when I went to, I mean, when I went to write the book, I had been covering crypto for, I think, like almost four years. And even I did not know half of the stuff, even even like a quarter of the stuff that I uncovered for the book. So, you know, I mean, there were just, um, yeah, lots of power struggles around things like titles or how much they should pay themselves or about who should be the leader of the foundation or how the foundation should be run or even before they established the foundation, whether or not they should establish a corporate entity or a nonprofit. I mean, it's just over and over and over and over again, these these conflicts just um, go on. And even this thing about how much they should be paid, I think they settled it, you know, in the spring of one year. And then in the summer of the following year, it came up again and caused a big <laughs> stir on Reddit. So even today, I get people tweeting at me about these kinds of things. So yes, these conflicts basically have kind of uh, stuck with Ethereum. And there, a lot of them are still going. I mean, you get the sense, you could tell, you've talked You talked to so many of these people seemingly multiple times. Uh, I can't even imagine how much work you put into this thing. But you can tell yeah. they're still fighting these battles multiple years later to you. Uh, and you're just in the middle trying to sort it out. I mean, that could not have been easy to do. Oh, yeah. I interviewed more than 200 people. And, you know, when you have this kind of decentralized story, that's that's a challenge in itself. You know, as you probably know, at the beginning of the book, I have this list of characters and it's 50 people long. And this is after I cut it down. <laughs> so there were there were, you know, other people that I interviewed or that were involved that, yeah, I did not mention them. But uh, that did lead to a lot of work where when people say things and they contradict other people, then I would need to try to get corroborating evidence, something that was contemporaneous, or I would just go around to many of the other people and try to, you know, suss out like what is, um, you know, as best as I can tell, the most accurate version of what happened back then. But you're right. Years later, people people were still litigating certain points with me. Mm. It really is fascinating. Um, it, let me go to a couple of the, the big uh, points in the book. There, the Dow hack is sort of a somewhat, if you're in these circles, you, you probably have heard of it, but you really go through, I mean, bit by bit, exactly how this happens. And we don't need to go into all the technical details. But what I, what I thought was pretty interesting about this was there, and this I think happens in a lot of crypto companies, but it happens, or crypto projects, but a lot of companies as well, where it's the, we start with this sort of utopian vision. And as that utopian vision develops and it gets furthered, there's this, I, there's this pragmatic reality that gets in the way. And there's this giant hack happens with Ethereum relatively early on. And it's not actually Ethereum, it's a separate sort of project, but it, it, was a, it would have been a huge effect to, with Ethereum. And they had to decide our utopian vision that this thing just runs on its own and we never touch it, is butting up against the reality that this project is going to lose a lot of reputation if we just allow all this money to get stolen. Can you kind of give us a walkthrough of this story and how it played out? Yes. So the DAO hack is the hack of something called the DAO, spelled D-A-O, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And in this particular case, it really was structured as a decentralized venture fund. And the way that I describe it in the book to understand the significance is that, so the DAO was created um, when Ethereum was maybe like nine months old or so. So it wasn't like the Ethereum to, of today where we have DeFi and NFTs and many other DAOs 
DAOs and all kinds of things happening on Ethereum. But the DAO really was like the only thing that people were interested in on Ethereum at that time. So the way I describe it in the book is it was as if you had the App Store and then this was the most popular application and the App Store barely had anything else. Hmm. So if the DAO became so popular, it actually garnered 15% of all ETH. Uh, meaning that 15% of all the youth in, existent, in existence went into crowdfunding for this DAO. And it was so popular that it actually became the highest crowdfunded project in history, mm. even when you include things, you know, like normal Kickstarters. Wow. So it was hugely important. And yes, it generated a, an existential crisis for Ethereum. Yeah. And, and so it, it was fascinating to watch without, I mean, there's, there's, you have so much great detail in the book and I, and I don't want to ruin it, but it, it was interesting in that they basically eventually decided to basically roll back uh, Ethereum to before the hack in a way. And there were all these questions as to whether they were essentially committing theft of the, on their own, um, they, were th whether they were hacking. There was a, a white hat group uh, involved here trying to, we were the good guys, we're doing it the right way. And there were a lot of people who said, you know what, you can't step in. You can't stop this. You can't touch it. You have to let it go. That's the vision of Ethereum. This caused a huge controversy because you know, I saw some chat logs where people were saying, look, this is a problem with the DAO, not Ethereum. Ethereum worked as intended. And they were also saying things like, um, if you show that you're able to kind of uh, have this control of Ethereum, that a centralized entity can have control over Ethereum, then regulators are going to come in and mm. it's going to have consequences for blockchains. In the end, actually, what was surprising is that um, about a year or yeah, a, a year later, um, some regulators did come out. They didn't actually talk too much about, you know, whether or not kind of undoing that hack was a good idea. But what they did say was that since everybody got their money back, that they weren't going to pursue any action uh, for a different infraction. So that was just sort of fascinating that in the end, actually, because they did basically return people's money. Uh, the, the SEC in this case decided not to pursue an enforcement action. Right, really is fascinating, and it's it's edge of your seat as they're trying to figure out what to do as you go through this. Um, there's also other stories that are just you know I, I I found it interesting to see all of the entrepreneurial spirit that was involved in this. Um, you tell the story of of my Ether wallet in here. And I thought this was really fascinating about how people who aren't necessarily in the original project were able to kind of just build on it and and make it better. It really was, in, in a way, it, it hit that decentralized spirit, I think, in a way that was kind of encouraging and, and shows maybe a bright future for, for all of these projects. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, by the end, I, to my mind, it's quite clear that Ethereum at that point is pretty decentralized. You have all these different people that are working on all different kinds of things. Uh, in the crypto world, you will often hear people say that um, if you compare it to something like gold, gold is this commodity where it... Um, you know, it, ha it has an industry of centralized companies working around it, but there's no one central gold corporation that is controlling gold. And I would actually say the same for Ethereum. I do know some people say, oh, the Ethereum Foundation controls things. But 
I can tell you right now, um, <laughs> because of many incidents that have happened that happened in the book, it's very clear Ethereum Foundation does not control uh, Ethereum, and that's how this evil twin of Ethereum that uh, is called Ethereum Classic ended up uh, being created. Because yes, the Ethereum Foundation could not stop that. So um, I agree with you. Uh, you know, the friends who started my Ether Wallet were just frankly some young. Twenty-somethings uh, who were really into Ethereum and just had an idea of how to use it better, so they created something that then became the most widely used wallet for the initial coin offering craze. Mm, it really is crazy. Um, all right, so uh, and all this is in the book, and you have so many, so many. We can't go through all of it because there's just so much stuff. But uh, what's fascinating about it is most of the stuff we've talked about here, Ethereum's at like ten dollars, right? You know, now it's three thousand. Uh, you know, there it's a it's you know a massive, massive, massive world. And here you have Vitalik, who starts this when he's 19 years old. He's, you know, now rich beyond all imagination, but he doesn't live like a rock star. He's not that guy at all. Who is he and what is he, how does he want this story to end? Yeah, you know, Vitalik is in a way a somewhat difficult person to know because he's not a very talkative person. So, so much of our interviews would be me asking him a question and then him giving like a one word or one <laughs> sentence answer and then me just pouncing on whatever he said to ask him another question on that. And, you know, a lot of it was like that. But, you know, what I came away with is that he's actually quite a pure and idealistic. And in many ways, especially early on in the book, he was a very naive individual. Um, You know, obviously, I do feel that my book ended up being a coming of age story for Vitalik, which I did not anticipate when I went to write the book. But you know, once I had the material, I realized that is what had transpired in those years. And I still feel that, you know, a lot of the reason that he kind of was able to be manipulated early on is because he's so pure that he cannot see when people have bad intent. He just can't even conceive of that. And it took him a while to even figure that out. And I think people had to frankly explain that kind of thing to him. So, you know, now he's definitely more mature. I think he has an awareness that people can be like that. But yeah, he definitely um, still, I think, is that kind of idealistic and pure person. But in that way, I actually also think he's quite evolved because he is definitely more selfless than other people that have been involved in the Ethereum project. And frankly, that's a pretty rare trait in the cryptocurrency world. (laughs) It's very true. And almost every area of of the world I've found. Uh, Laura Shin, she's the author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. This is like the authoritative story of of, of Ethereum. And if you're interested in this at all, I can't recommend it enough. She's also the host of the Unchained podcast. You should definitely check that out as well. Laura, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. 